Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, do immigrants really take our jobs? Part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and recorded live at the Nate Holden Performing Arts Center. This discussion features Jack Kaiser, Chief Economist for the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation, Civil Rights Attorney Connie Rice, Fernando J. Guerra, Director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles, and LA Times op-ed columnist Aaron Aubrey Kaplan. We begin with the moderator for tonight's discussion, Andres Martinez, editor of the Los Angeles Times editorial pages. This week, my mind has been sort of submerged in the Middle East, and it's nice to come back home to uh, one of our domestic quagmires, um, this whole issue of immigration, which has been so contentious, the debate, and we've really lived it here in Los Angeles in a very immediate way, watching the mobilizations and the reactions to it and the underlying debate. And so I'd like to introduce Jack Kaiser. Thank Thank you. you for being here. And maybe you could help us out in terms of setting the scene here. We have this incredibly charged debate about illegal immigration at a time when people, I think, are fretting about globalization generally and trade and other ramifications of a shrinking world. We have unemployment rates nationally, at least, at historically fairly low levels, and yet this debate is so charged. So if you could just help lay the context in terms of what you're seeing as potential answers to this question. Uh, Basically, we are at full employment in the United States, in California, in Los Angeles County. If you look at the unemployment rates, they're very, very low. A lot of people don't understand that the economy has been doing rather well. Uh, We attribute that to uh, probably politics. Uh, People don't want to give the White House credit for the strength of the economy. We call it the quiet boom. And basically, you're hearing business community complain they can't find enough qualified workers, and I think that's a very important uh, statement. Qualified workers, people who can read and write English, have math skills, have computer skills, because this is the new world, the global economy. So this is the situation we're in. You have some industries that are obviously very, very dependent on low-cost labor, uh, have a history of employing immigrants like construction, agriculture, leisure and hospitality services, but even if you go out into the manufacturing area of Los Angeles County, you find a lot of Latinos in the labor force. So we are slowing down. So say by the middle of next year, you could start to hear some complaints about, well, the unemployment rate is up, and I'm really angry about this competition. And let me look over to uh, Fernando. Uh, Fernando Guerra, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. If we look locally what's happening in our community. There's this economic question about whether or not immigrants are taking away jobs from others or perhaps doing jobs that wouldn't otherwise exist. Maybe we have more valet parkers in Los Angeles than we would without immigration. Um, I'd welcome your thoughts on that question, but also if you wanted to address the sort of broader political tensions that exist as a result of this immigration. I think you're absolutely right in your introductory remarks that this is a multidimensional problem, that it is economic, but it's also very social. And we try to use economic facts and all kinds of economic anecdotes to either support or be against uh, one position or the other. Um, do immigrants take jobs? My answer would be no. 
But on balance, you have to realize that there are certain sectors, there are certain areas where Latinos do impact the employment of other groups of U.S. citizens. I'm not objective about this. You know, I am a son of immigrants. I have brown eyes, and I see the world through these brown eyes. And I can't but help see the positive attributes that immigrants have in Los Angeles in general. But am I naive enough to know that immigrants have been all positive 100%? No. I know that they have tremendously impacted certain neighborhoods and transformed those neighborhoods. And like all of us, I mean, we all want to go back to our neighborhood, including myself. I go back to my neighborhood, and it's dramatically changed. And when many of us go back to our neighborhoods, the number one change that we recognize and we see is the ethnic change, usually Latino. And we therefore say that they've changed the neighborhood that I remember that nurtured me, and it doesn't make me feel good. So there's a, a lot of that that is displaced upon Latinos. But immigrants create a vibrant economy and, in a sense, create more jobs. So they may directly take some jobs in certain areas, but indirectly create all kinds of different jobs. In the areas where they certainly take jobs, and let's just talk about African Americans here in Los Angeles, because that sometimes has created tension, is you take a look at janitors. When I was growing up, that was an area where uh, African Americans dominated. Now it's almost dominated, it is dominated by Latinos and Mexican immigrants. So there's a very specific area where you can see that Mexican immigration or immigration impacted the U.S. African-American residents of Los Angeles. There's other areas where Latinos have created employment for African-Americans. African-Americans tend to be concentrated for a variety of different reasons in municipal jobs. The fact that we have so many children of immigrants, so many immigrant children, create all kinds of different jobs for teachers, create all kinds of different jobs for public sector employment, where you have a lot of African-American employment, middle-class employment. So in a sense, the presence of Latinos and Mexican immigrants or other immigrants creates the need for that. So when you balance it all out, I think that you see immigrants mostly in dynamic economic areas. Wherever you have growth, where you have job opportunities, there are immigrants present. You don't see immigrants in areas that are in decline, or in dramatic decline, or you see very few immigrants compared to Los Angeles or Houston or places that are, are really growing. Let me ask you, there's a lot of talk about black-brown tension in Los Angeles. It's sort of a, a buzz phrase when we talk about politics. But have you discerned tensions within the Latino community? Because there are immigrants and there are immigrants, and let's not forget that we are talking about illegal immigration, and we can talk about whose fault it is that they're illegal. So I don't want to demonize the individual, but this is an illegal form of immigration. And I wonder if second-generation Mexican-Americans or immigrants who are here legally sometimes get caught up in a backlash. And maybe they see their wages depressed or their jobs taken away. And because the political rhetoric of late has been of great unity, at least at the surface, yeah. uh, the facade is that all Latino organizations want immigration liberalization. But are there tensions that we're not seeing? Well, I mean, yes and no. There are 10 million people in Los Angeles County, 4 million Latinos. Latinos are not monolithic. Not every Latino thinks alike. Are, are there Latinos who are unhappy about immigration and think that illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants shouldn't be allowed, shouldn't be uh, enabled, quote-unquote? Yeah, there's many of them. There's hundreds of them, even thousands of them. But that's amongst 4 million Latinos in Los Angeles. 
The data that I have seen, including surveys that I myself have been involved in, both locally and nationally, show overwhelmingly that the vast majority of Latinos are very supportive of immigrant, immigrant rights, and the treatment of immigrants. Uh, many people think, you know, you hear this a lot from people who are opposed to immigration and undocumented immigrants saying, hey, we're not talking about you. You're a U.S. citizen. It's not really about you. Latinos collectively do not believe that, and I say this from quantitative survey data that we have seen over and over. Latinos believe, U.S.-born, U.S. residents, voters, that when you are attacking immigrants, you really are also attacking Latinos, and they're not far from that, and they're not going to give into that, and they will be very supportive of immigrant rights. It's overwhelming, the data that we have from surveys that I did just a month ago to surveys that we've done since the early uh, 90s. It's very clear, it's very consistent, not only here in Los Angeles, but throughout the country, that you're not going to get the majority of Latinos or even a significant amount of Latinos to be anti-immigrant. Can you find spokespersons who are of Mexican heritage, first generation, second generation? Yeah, I can find hundreds of them that will be willing to support the Minutemen. But can I find a high percentage of Mexican-Americans who are going to be supportive of them? Absolutely not. And I feel very sure about that with the data that we have. Um, I just want to turn back for a minute to our economist, Jack. You mentioned that the U.S. economy is pretty close to full employment. But is that, if we could dig down a little bit deeper and look at unemployment rates for low-skilled workers, perhaps people who didn't finish high school, is the picture still so rosy? No, you see slightly higher unemployment rates. We don't have anything for the local area in terms of ethnic makeup, but statewide non-white residents 16 years of age or older, their unemployment rate is 6%. It's not good, but it's not horrible. So I think you have to look at that question. But the other thing we have to consider is what's causing this undocumented immigration. Everybody acts like it's just strictly a U.S. problem, and I'd have to say it's probably a problem in Mexico, and we are watching the Mexican election results uh, very, very carefully. I was surprised I only got maybe a couple of phone calls from the media saying, is the outcome of the Mexican election important to Southern California? And the answer is, yes, it's very, very important. It's important to the United States. Now, if you go around and you have some skills, you can find a job. But what we find is certain areas of Los Angeles County, like South Los Angeles, the picture is not so good. We have been losing jobs here for a considerable period of time. And what can we do to turn that situation around? And that goes beyond the immigration question. You're listening to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? A discussion recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo. On the next Zocalo Radio, we reprise Sonia Nazario's unforgettable interview about her award-winning book, Enrique's Journey. And you'll have another chance to catch Mohamed Yunus of the Grameen Bank discussing microcredit lending. For more information on upcoming programs and live events and to download past radio programs, visit our website. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? I'd like to bring in Aaron to the conversation. Aaron is a columnist who's written very poignantly on our pages about watching uh, political mobilization, the marches in, in March and in May, and reflecting on the extent to which this was a civil rights movement and uh, your mixed feelings about some of the changes in, in the neighborhoods that Fernando alluded to. 
But first of all, I'd love to hear if you have an, uh, a dog in this fight in the sense of answering the question about whether, from your perspective, immigrants are taking our jobs, and then to address more broadly what's going on. Well, I think you have to look at the phrase, our jobs. I mean, I'm not a professional in this. I'm not an academic. I'm not a, an expert, per se. But I, like Fernando, I'm partisan. I've lived here my whole life. My family's African-American, came here from the South. And I've seen a lot of changes in the neighborhood where I grew up and where I pretty much still live. But... Something sticks in my mind that I actually mentioned in a column that I wrote, and that was getting back to the janitor issue. Um, the documentary that premiered, I think, last year called The New L.A., which looks at the history of organized labor in Los Angeles, but it kind of implies that, that L.A. is sort of on a new track. There's a part in the film where Harold Meyerson, who my old colleague at The Weekly, is talking about what happened in Los Angeles, and he talked about the Justice for Janitors movement, which was in the late 80s. And like you said, prior to that movement, the janitors, downtown, Century City, etc., were almost entirely African-American, making X amount of money, some benefits, not a great job, but, you know, a livable job. Then, you know, we had waves of immigration, and then suddenly all the black janitors were just gone. And the Latino immigrants took the jobs, about 60% of the pay, none of the benefits. Well, in my mind, that's a different job. That is not the same job. So I'm looking at it from the black perspective that that's just my experience, but... A lot of jobs that Latinos took, blacks never really had hold on. For example, the gardening and some of the trades, etc. For a lot of reasons I won't go into because of history, etc. We, I mean, we never had those jobs. And I, I support immigrant rights because I instinctively know that it is the same freedom struggle that blacks have gone through. However, I think that there's a lot of anxiety, and we do hear a lot about black-brown tension. That is very real, and we're not airing that anxiety because... You know, Jack was talking about the unemployment rate. Unemployment rate, let's break that down. It's the worst for black people. It's the absolute worst for black males. Now, when you look at that and you look at um, who's out there getting jobs, even the fast food kind of jobs, and if they're going to Latino youth as opposed to black youth, that has an impact, and I've seen the impact. Um, for some, this whole issue is more of a theory than it is day-to-day. It's day-to-day to me. I mean, I happen to live in Inglewood, which is one of those communities very much like South LA, shifting from black to brown. And the anxiety is not even necessarily economic, it's demographic. We're seeing our communities change on a yearly basis. And that creates a very understandable anxiety that in a way has nothing to do with Latino immigrants or whatever immigrants are taking our place, literally. It's very difficult to talk about this without sounding xenophobic or paranoid. And people tend to dismiss black anxiety like you're just being paranoid. No, I think that part of this problem has not really been discussed. And what I hear a lot of is, let's all just get together on a round table and talk it out and get on the same page. I don't think it's that simple. I'm not saying we shouldn't get together. I want to be clear about that. But I think we have to honor that anxiety and to really look at the history and the context of this, which most people don't want to do. They kind of want to see this as interpersonal problem. Why can't we get along? I get along fine with you. I think overall, we all in L.A., Latinos, blacks, etc., get along pretty good, notwithstanding the jail riots we've had, the, the school tension, the violence. We all know that's an exception and not the rule. So I think that we tend to focus too narrowly on the interpersonal relations, which I think are pretty good, but it's the economic realities we don't want to deal with and, and frankly, and the very real impact that immigration does have on, say, black communities. It's interesting the way you describe it as a demographic anxiety, because I think a lot of what we see on the right you know, if you get on the talk radio. It's a demographic anxiety, a cultural anxiety, but it's a little more theoretical than what you're talking about in terms of neighborhood by neighborhood. It's people who just maybe have read that there are an awful lot of people out there speaking Spanish or they get frustrated because they ran into somebody who didn't speak English and they go on talk radio and they vent. So we kind of know how that anxiety manifests itself. Mm -hmm. 
But in terms of how does the anxiety that you're talking about, you're saying it's hard for people to be honest about it and to bring it up, but how does it manifest itself? I'm speaking of Ted Hayes, the homeless activist who kind of joined forces with the Minutemen, and I don't think that's the answer. But beyond Ted Hayes, there really isn't, there's not a really visible or audible black voice out there, you know, speaking reasonably. That's a failure of leadership, too. We mm -hmm. have our political leadership overall is not doing well with this. The progressives among us are sort of shrinking. I mean, it has, it. it has been interesting to, to watch the evolution of labor on this immigration question. It's sort of related to what you were saying, that instinctively you realize that if these individuals have the same rights and they're not in the shadows, then the suppression of wages and so forth might be mitigated because if you have to give these people the same benefits or minimum wage and you're not doing things off the books, there's less space for exploitation. So maybe some of that is seen in the labor context. Text. But I'd like to bring in Connie to this discussion. Um, welcome. I asked Erin if she had a, a dog in this fight, and I should ask you if you have a consent decree in this fight, because <laughs> L.A. seems to be the city ruled by uh, consent decrees, and, and you've been very busy enforcing and standing up for people's rights in many different contexts. And I'm curious to hear your perspectives on this whole debate about illegal immigration and where you see us headed. Thank you, Andres. I'd just like to bring out some additional information on some of the themes that Jack, Fernando, and Aaron have brought out. The anxiety isn't just amongst African Americans and Latinos. I was in Chinatown the other day, and I go to this one restaurant. I've been going for 15 years, and the conversation amongst the waitresses who have been there forever was about how the Vietnamese were taking over Chinatown and threatening their jobs. So immigration has, from the beginning of this country, been a kind of scapegoat Rorschach test. It's rarely about the economics, because the economic impact is mixed. I mean, if you look at the Muriel boat folks who came over and looked at the impact on the African-American employment in Miami, African-American employment actually went up, and it was Cuban immigrant employment that went down. And the research really shows that immigrants first impact other immigrants that have the same skill levels and are in the same positions to compete for the same jobs. The next group that gets impacted is what Aaron was talking about, low-skilled, dropout African-Americans. But African-American employment was affected way before the big waves of Latino immigrants started coming over and is more affected, more affected by far by technology and the shrinking of the public sector because, we, as Fernando said, we are disproportionately in the public sector. It is also affected by the weakening of unions, and what's interesting is I was in a conversation with two union leaders, and they were saying, almost like, Connie, it was our bad. Oops, our bad. Because they said, you know, now we realize we came in and took African-American jobs and displaced African-Americans' position in the labor movement in L.A. And now employers are trying to bring in more compliant and obedient recent Asian Pacific immigrants because now Latinos have gotten civically and politically empowered, are insisting on their rights, so now they're going to get displaced by more obedient, more recent immigrants. And the sort of Latino leaders in the labor movement are saying, oops, we need to get the African Americans back. So it's these dynamics interplay in a lot of different ways. And Jack was beginning to drill down in the data. Let's be realistic here. We're not going to fix the immigration problem until we help Mexico create an economy. Number one. 
This xenophobic lashing out misses the big picture here. We are attached by umbilical cord to the Mexican economy. We need to understand what it takes. Our trade policies hurt Mexico. Our subsidies of farmers hurt Mexico. If we would invest in making Mexico a first world country, we wouldn't have this issue in the way that it is presented now to us. Secondly, Jack started to drill down in the data. Let's go down to the underclass. Incarceration in the underclass has probably impacted black employment more than anything. There needs to be a movement to remove the barriers to employment from people who come out of prison. We need to re-examine those policies. And we need to understand that in the black underclass, it's not a 6% unemployment rate. The unemployment rate in Harlem for underclass black males between the ages of 16 and 40 is 50%. That is catastrophic. We also need to understand something that Jack talked about, which was the shrinking of the job base. We can get distracted and focus on immigrants who are scraping by to make it in this country and who risk their lives to come over the border to work here. We can do that if we want to. But the real dagger aimed at the Los Angeles County's life and our ability to sustain a middle class is the fact that the job base has so shrunk that right now it's not clear that we're going to be able to generate the amount of middle class jobs that will sustain a middle class lifestyle. L.A. has a barbell economy, and the barbell on the poor end has just gotten geometrically bigger. The barbell on the ultra-rich end for our friends who have marble driveways and don't know what to do with their money, they've got 10 homes they can't even live in, that is actually not growing. And the barbell, the very thin middle class, has gotten thinner. We need to be focused on that like a laser beam. And we need to reframe this issue in terms of what kind of economic activity is going to make the pie bigger. You're listening to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? A discussion recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Featuring Jack Kaiser, Chief Economist for the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation, Civil Rights Attorney Connie Rice, Fernando J. Guerra, Director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles, and L.A. Times op-ed columnist Aaron Aubrey Kaplan. Moderated by Andres Martinez, editor of the L.A. Times editorial pages. This is Zocalo. In the coming weeks, Zocalo Radio will be airing plenty of thought-provoking discussions, including National Book Award winner Nathaniel Philbrick, Academy Award-winning sound designer Richard King, Watergate star witness John Dean, archivist Maggie Rivas-Rodriguez, and sculptor Lita Albuquerque. Listen live, download the podcast, tell a friend, and check out our website for more information. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Stay tuned to Zocalo. What better way to kick off the new school year than to share public radio with a student in your life? Expand a child's education today by giving a gift membership, now featuring special packages for students of all ages. Today's children are tomorrow's lifelong learners, and your gift can help establish the next generation of public radio listeners and supporters. Give a gift membership online today at kpcc.org. And thank you. This is 89.3 KPCC, now broadcasting two new digital HD radio channels. 
BBC Mundo, the Spanish-language news service from the BBC, and The Current, an adult alternative music format from Minnesota Public Radio. For more information on HD Radio, visit our website at kpcc.org. people have more money, healthier children, and don't get into trouble. At least that's what government programs are telling some people who'd never considered marriage. My mother, she took care of her kids by herself. All my friends was just raised by their mother. No one even talked about marriage until we came here. I'm Steve Inskeep. Marriage as a way out of poverty. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. The next Air Talk comes your way Monday morning at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Guest host Ted Chen will talk about what happened to the deal on redistricting and term limits in Sacramento. And Christopher Noxon, who contributes to a number of prominent publications, is author of Rejuvenile, Kickball, Cartoons, Cupcakes, and the Reinventions of the American Grown-Up. He joins Ted Chen. Monday's Air Talk on 89.3. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? A discussion with Jack Kaiser, Connie Rice, Fernando J. Guerra, and Aaron Aubrey Kaplan, moderated by Andres Martinez. The question of turning Mexico into a first-world economy is an interesting one. But if that somehow were to happen, I guess the question is still... Would the U.S. need to import, then, workers from somewhere else? I mean, we're, are there still going to be low-skilled jobs that are going to go unfilled? Or do you feel that part of the barbell economy is that we have an artificially large pool of low-skilled workers simply because they're there, they come in, and so why not have valet parking? Where does that I think both dynamics happen? are at work, Andres. I mean, there are a lot of myths about immigration and its impact. And the research is mixed. You have to look community by community. In the border states, the dynamics are completely different from Iowa or North Carolina, okay? Every single thesis has a study to support it. One of the myths, however, that the economists are absolutely unanimous on is that it is not a myth that Americans don't want to work in meatpacking. Our educational levels have gotten so high that the American working public has kind of moved beyond those jobs. I'm not picking cotton, I can tell you that right now, all right? I found across the research that that just isn't a myth. It is also true that when you have a huge wave of an influx over a very short period of time, at the same time you have 70,000 jobs leaving the South Central area, for example, and Pacoima lost a lot of its job base, all of those postal jobs, the, the fire, t- the tire company, I know Najee remembers this, the Budweiser plant, they had a lot of plants in South Central that had a very big manufacturing. Those all disappeared. There wasn't a blue ribbon committee. There was no concern. You know, we were building skyscrapers. We had no concern about the loss of those jobs. But I also think that when you have a huge influx, immigrants, that new employment base actually does generate new jobs. They find a place to create new work. And as Fernando was suggesting, it's mixed. Middle-class African-Americans benefited from the influx of labor. Poor African-Americans got rototilled. My buddies who are upper middle class and have their kids in private schools and have jacuzzis and jaguars, their income's gone up. So you really have to look at the cohorts. And yes, when you have an influx, 
Immigrants create jobs. And remember, the impact is more on their own cohorts. Immigrant to immigrant, there's a zero-sum game there. And then it is the low-skilled native population that is closest to them in skills. Immigrants affect each other. If they started importing lawyers, I'd be impacted. That's not who's coming over the border. And it's the skill levels. There are some theories that the United States needs to control its immigration by skill level. We actually don't graduate enough PhDs. We're, we're getting lazier. We're getting dumber at the high end. And we have to have our engineers and PhDs come from other countries. That is something else that's unacceptable. But if you want to talk about immigration policy, that's actually where the businesses want to focus. It's interesting how, as economies develop, the definitions of what's a desirable or high-skilled jobs change. And I'm sure in a few decades or maybe a few years, Aaron and I will be like, we're not writing for a newspaper. That's <laughs> we got better things to do. There probably, there probably won't be newspapers. Well, that's, that's, that's a debate yeah. for That's a different panel. That's... That's a shorter term note. Yeah. Uh, but Jack, if we could turn back to you, if you want to react to some of this. Yeah, I think one thing that people don't understand, there is no economic strategy or economic development policy for Los Angeles County. There's really not one for the state. I thought that was your job. Well, we're going to try to work on it, but you have certain issues out there. And for example, a lot of people in the educational system lament the fact that there's no more what we used to call industrial arts. And you have to say, if you had industrial arts, that would give a lot of people the idea that there's a career path that they wouldn't drop out of school. And then you look at what goes on up in Sacramento, and they're sort of isolated. They don't like Los Angeles because they don't understand us. And so I think we need to develop an economic development strategy, but we also need to concentrate on the education thing. And right now, what is it, LA Unified? Well, all the kids are going to go to a four-year college. Uh, no, people can have good careers in the industrial arts. Maybe we need to come up with a better name for them, but this is what we have to look at. And in many cases, we're driving the good jobs out. Right now, you have residential developers who are running around buying up in industrial sites so they can convert it to high-end housing, and they don't give a hoot about the companies or the people that work in those companies that are on those sites. I can name chapter and verse and people that have been displaced in situations like that. Fernando, if you think about L.A. compared to other parts of California and other parts of the country, and as Connie mentioned, you now see immigration playing a huge role in the economies of places like Iowa and North Carolina that used to sort of view this as a regional issue. But are we, do you feel, ahead or behind the curve in L.A. in terms of not necessarily the economic question, but sort of society reconciling itself to taking in illegal immigrants? Are things worse or better here? Or is that simply a national phenomenon that's going to have to be addressed elsewhere? I mean, I know it's going to come to a shock to a lot of the audience members, but we are way ahead in terms of dealing with the issues. I totally agree with Aaron that we need to talk a lot more about this, but we are talking a lot more about it than they are in most other places, believe it or not. One of the comparisons that you have to make is over time. As the percent of the population, the number of immigrants is still below the historic high. There used to be a time in America where there was a much higher percentage of immigrants living in America than there is today, though we are getting close to that historic high, and certainly we're much higher than we have been in the 50 years. Taking a look at Los Angeles, when we last had that historic high back in the 19-teens and 20s or even back to the 1880s, it almost had no impact on Los Angeles. 
Today, when we're again reaching historic high, it has greatly impacted Los Angeles. This is what I call the myth of multiculturalism about Los Angeles. We love to write this beautiful story about how multicultural the first pobladores, the settlers who came to Olvera Street and founded L.A. They were indigenous, they were Spanish, they were um, actually there were some mulatos, they were some of African origin. They were all kinds of different people that settled here. And we say we've always been multicultural. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Los Angeles of 1900 is the widest city that has ever existed in urban America. By taking the census and taking a look at the non-immigrant, non-ethnic, non-African-American, etc. Los Angeles of 1900, even wider than New York and Boston, etc. of 1790, the very first census when you count immigrants. So think about that. We go from being the whitest city in the history of urban America to the most multicultural city in the history of the world. And that incredible transition really only happens in about 40 years. If you create that transition anywhere else, the incredible instability politically, socially, and economic that would occur would be unheard of. Yet we've been able to manage it to some degree. And when people around the world take a look at where has this incredible demographic shift occurred intensely, nowhere else but in L.A. has it occurred this intensely. And they come and look and find out, how did it happen? How did you manage it? And Jack talked about there being no industrial policy for Los Angeles. Well, let me tell you, there was no policy for this as well. The Human Relations Commission of the city of Los Angeles consisted of two people, the executive director and the secretary for a long time. It was actually Reardon who increased it to a couple more people. But we have not proactively really taken a look in terms of managing this, but by accident of growth in place, meaning that our economy was always expanding and our land base was always expanding, we could in a way run away from the problem and not have to deal with it. And that has helped. When we stop growing for a variety of different reasons or we start increasing the population and the densities in certain places, then the problem gets a little bit worse. So, yes, there's this myth of multiculturalism that we've always been multicultural, and, but we haven't, but we clearly are today, and we are, believe it or not, the model around the world. I do a lot of work with some colleagues from Europe who take a look at immigration, and they marvel at the stability and the lack of violence, the lack of tension from their perspective that occurs here. I'm not trying to sweep the tension under the table. I think there is some here. But when you compare it to Paris or London or places like that, we are worlds apart in terms of the discussion. One real interesting comment that one of my colleagues made is, you're so lucky, your immigrants are just like you. And I think, well, yeah, I'm Mexican. He goes, and he goes no, 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 just like Americans. And I go, what do you mean? He says, they tend to be Christian, number one. They tend to speak a European language, so they understand the alphabet, etc. They believe in your economic system. They want to be there, etc., etc. When you look at it from that perspective, the immigrants that come to America compared to the immigrants that go all over the world in different places, we are very much alike, comparatively speaking. It's difficult for some people to accept that, but that is the case. Where we really have a problem in terms of tension, and Connie alluded to this a little bit earlier, is when we institutionalize race relations, the prisons, the schools, 
politics and campaigns, where we then begin to pit people against one another and the tensions are going to grow. We have to manage that in terms of keeping it there because each one of those cases has its own dynamics and try to maintain that in those institutions instead of letting it impact us out in the real world. And I'll end with this. Every single day in Los Angeles, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of intercultural, multicultural moments and relationships. We're having one right now, okay? Every single day in L.A. And we, right? didn't, we weren't even in a crash. That's right. And 90, 99% of those interactions are either positive or neutral. It's that 1% that tends to have a problem. How would you like me to define you, your personality, in terms of your worst 1% trait? And I would say that is what you, defines you as your person, that, that 1% trait. That is who you are. Well, that would be unfair. And so when people talk about Los Angeles and use crash or what have you and say that's what defines L.A., that's not my L.A. Yeah, that's part of my L.A., but that's hardly part of what I well, see. I think you've given us all a wonderful cocktail party nugget, which is that the, uh, the whole thing about in the history of white cities, there's never been a whiter city than L.A. in 1900. I'm going to use that one. Um, as, as long as you cite me, Aaron, I have no problem. I'll cite you. Uh, especially if, it turn, if they challenge me. I'm yeah. like, um, Aaron, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, okay. and, and coming back to the, sort of the, the economic question and how it intersects with the political debate, if Congress came to you and said, what should we do? You've got 12, 15, however million illegal undocumented workers in this country, and there are various proposals on the table, one from the House, one from the Senate. And they said, Aaron, what should we do? Do you think that we ought to legalize the status of most of these people and allow them to continue at their jobs, which presumably presupposes that they're not taking anyone else's jobs, or maybe it's just too late? And furthermore, would you create, a going forward, a guest worker program? To have people come for a few years as the need arises, is that a healthy thing or not? Well, I would say, just off the top of my head, I would say yes to the legalization. I don't know about the guest worker thing. Somebody said in a discussion I heard about this, said, now look at that phrase, guest worker. That's something strange about that. You ask somebody to come in your house as a guest, and then you say, go to work, clean my house, and then get out. Um, so I, a good I, idea. there's something I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure about guest worker. I don't know that you wave a wand and legalize everyone. I just don't think coming here is a criminal act. I, it's hard for me to embrace that. So I would err on the side of legalization. But I, I just want to say, I just want to add something to what Fernando said, talking about this being a white city, etc. Very true, and I think that the myth of multiculturalism is also true. But I also thought about how, you know, there's a lot of domestic immigration to L.A., of course. People came from other cities. Black people came from the South. And everyone wanted to remake L.A. into something different and better. And LA, like Fernando said, is so big, it just kind of absorbed all this for a long time, and maybe now we're at the absorption point of some kind. But I think that for African Americans, the work is so far from being done, the dream is so far from being realized that what we see is all the discussion and all the concern and all the political attention is on immigration right now, and that's probably as it should be, but there's a sense, and the sense has been growing for many, many years, that we are off the political agenda, that what we think um, that our buy-in doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't matter to anybody what we think about immigration. You're, you're talking about I'm talking about African Americans, right. And that further fuels that anxiety. You know, we're talking about who's taking our jobs, but we really should be talking about the schools. 
because that's really a flashpoint for this. And I mean, LA Unified is what, 10% white, maybe? Maybe? Okay. I mean, th that's clear to me that we have left the schools to the mostly Latino and African-Americans, and there's something kind of wrong with that. I remember when I was a kid, when people still thought there might be integration, which never really happened, but I was bused to a school that's predominantly white, which only was a few miles from me, but I went, and the net effect of me and other African-American kids going to that school, it is now completely resegregated. All the whites left that school, and that school is now predominantly Latino, and African-American, and the whites who live there just go somewhere else. That's a very odd thing to me. But we take that as normal, and you know, we're all sort of chasing each other. You know, the pe a lot of people complain about Latinos don't live anywhere near them. They may come into their house to clean once a week or something like that, but it, it tends to be more theoretical. It's funny that LA is such a model, but I guess all things considered, we don't clash as much, we don't crash as much as we could in places like New York, et cetera. Well, but it just shows you how bad things are somewhere else. Let me put to Connie the question I put to Aaron, which is the 535 members of Congress have now gone on to your place and want to ask you what you think ought to be done in terms of these alternatives, and then we can open it up. Yeah, as if they would ever take enough hallucinatory drugs to ever ask me anything. But <laughs> There was one debate I had on a conservative uh, talk show. And I got so frustrated with the xenophobia that I lost my cool, and I finally said, I don't want to hear from any more of you angry white men about immigration. The only people I want to hear about immigration from are Native Americans, and there, that ought to be a rich discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I regained my cool and came back to the rational. Um, there is no way you're going to get buses lined up from Anchorage to the Mexican border to deport anybody. Um, this used to be Mexico. It makes absolutely no sense to me to talk about anything except if folks are here, you find ways to allow the folks who need to get back to their families to go back and forth, you make that easy. Mm -hmm. For folks who want to stay here, you make that easy. There is no way that you can convince me that we would be able to do anything that the right wing wants to do and preserve our constitutional democracy, preserve our values, and actually preserve one of the best dynamics in this country, which is the creativity of immigrants, whether they be low-skilled, high-skilled, or whatever. African-Americans are probably the most diverse folks in the country. We are 19th century America blended. We've got Native American, white, and African. Uh, of course, nobody notices that, even to this day. But there has to be a focus on the African-American plight. It can't be swept under the rug. There also has to be a focus on the poor white plight. You go to the hollers of Appalachia, you see the exact same devastating dynamics. You're starting to see mass incarceration because of meth. We cannot continue to rototill and destroy through public policies that are really annihilation policies. We cannot continue to allow that to happen to African Americans or any other community in this country. So there needs to be a very specific focus without the xenophobia and hatred. If you're not marching against technology, you have no business marching against Latino immigrants. We have got to be honest about the dynamics that are really causing the stress and the distress at the bottom of our economic pool. And ladies and gentlemen, wake up and smell the crocodile. All of us are in the crosshairs, as the poor are the canary in the mine shaft. And the carbon monoxide is coming for the middle class. We need to understand what Jack said. There is no economic plan, or any of us. LA is an experiment. We are an experiment, and I'm not sure how it's going to come out. 
We need to focus on the velociraptor in the shower, which is that we don't have the economic engines and the job creation capacity to maintain a middle class. We can battle each other over the poorest people in this county if we want to. I think that's stuck on stupid. We need to start framing the issue and to get our politicians to stop squabbling with one another over who called whom a name and get them to focus on an agenda that is about the economic viability because we will turn on one another just like any other country when scarcity happens. That's when we turn on one another. And Fernando's description of us handling this influx well is going to go right out the window. We will turn on one another just like any other human population. So I think we can demand an agenda that is about an agenda, what Martin Luther King talked about as the Grand Alliance, demanding economic prosperity for everybody in the American family, and that includes our immigrants. You're listening to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? A discussion recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo. On the next Zocalo Radio, we reprise Sonia Nazario's unforgettable interview about her award-winning book, Enrique's Journey, and you'll have another chance to catch Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank discussing microcredit lending. For more information on upcoming programs and live events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, go to ZocaloLA.org, that's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? In this section, the Zocalo audience gets its turn to ask questions. This is a question for Fernando and Connie, if you care to answer this. I'm thinking about the way the media have framed this issue. If you listen to the radio, read newspapers, there have been many, many programs and articles about the black-brown conflict. I live here in South Los Angeles, and I, I think it's true. Right? In people's everyday lives, there is this black-brown conflict. But my question is, is why isn't this a black-brown and white conflict? Because it seems calling it a black-brown conflict sort of excludes whites from the picture and removes all responsibility from whites. But if we consider jobs, who's doing the hiring, who owns the company who are, who's doing the hiring, who's setting policy, don't whites come back in the picture? And so by calling it a black-brown problem, when we think of race, we think of races in terms of people of color. And does this ignore the role of whites in this issue? Yes, I think it's framed primarily through the cultural lens. They're, ta- they're not talking about immigration. The impact of immigration, as I said before, you can see the impact of immigration in study after study. It's a varied story. It depends on what community you're talking about, what the economic conditions were before the immigrants arrived, and so forth. We're not saying there's no impact. We're saying that the distribution is concentrated at the lower ends. Secondly, I, I think that immigration ends up being a kind of scapegoat Rorschach test. And they're mixing border security up with immigration. You're mixing cultural coexistence and conflict up with immigration. You're mixing up a number of other issues with immigration. The economic lens is not really the lens that anybody talks about. It's mainly the cultural fears, the change in neighborhood that Aaron talked about. That is a human response to anybody who's different coming in. So, yes, I think it's not broad enough. I think there's enormous conflict and confusion in the Asia-Pacific American and immigrant communities. You see it with Japanese versus Korean. I heard it with the Chinese and the Vietnamese in Chinatown. So it isn't broad enough. I think you're absolutely right. But I also think we've got to understand when we're really talking about immigration and when we're really talking about other stuff. I mean, I 
I couldn't agree with you more that in a sense we've abdicated uh, the role for whites or absolved uh, whites from being part of this uh, dialogue, although you certainly see a lot of whites in this audience talking about this issue. But, you know, certainly as an academic and a professor, when I teach Chicano studies, I have very few whites. And so when we started talking about how can we talk about this and attract whites into the classroom, we changed it to an American culture where you had to talk about whites as being part of the mix. Don't exclude them. Don't have them be one group and everybody else the other group. And therefore, they can distance themselves from the discussion. And so that's part of what we need to do. You certainly have framed the question that way, and I think you put it right. But let me tell you something. It's also about class. I'm sitting here, and the fi- I have more in common with the five people at this table than I do with most Latinos in Los Angeles. So there are a lot of people excluded from the conversation, and a lot of voices have to be there, including some that we sometimes we don't want to hear, but we need to hear, whether you're a black nationalist, a Mexican nationalist, or a white nationalist. We have to hear those voices. We don't have to agree, but they're coming from a certain perspective, and if we try to avoid them, it does no good. We just end up talking to like-minded individuals. I'm Naji Ali, uh, director of Project Islamic Hope, and I do have a question, uh, but it's one of the founding members of the Latino and African American Leadership Alliance. My question is, and actually I need to direct this question to Connie Rice and Aaron Arbery Kaplan, as we do share the same experience as African Americans. What can the black community do to create more jobs and economic empowerment for ourselves instead of depending on others, outsiders, to give us jobs. Well, that's a whole other panel. But I think it's both things need to happen. I think, I mean, there isn't a black economy as such. And trying to create one sort of independent of the American economy works and doesn't work. And the whole relationship of blacks to the American economy and employability and all that is very complicated. And I, I, I wish I had some kind of easy answer for you. It's something that we talk about all the time, that the combination of self-sufficiency and cooperation. We can't exist by ourselves. You know, we, as Connie said, we need to address that problem. All of us, not just black people, but everybody, it should concern more people than it does. And that's a big piece that's missing. You know, but trying to create a separate sort of infrastructure. I'm afraid many people feel that time is sort of come and gone. You know, we're all like pining for the days of segregation when we had businesses and we employed each other. And we don't have that anymore. People grumble now, it's because you know, those neighborhoods are no longer black, they're all Latino. And so people see that and they see the opportunity, our economic opportunity gone. I think that's not entirely true, but there's some truth to it. So I think we're, just, we're still sorting that out. Um, it is another panel, Najee. Um, access to capital, the ability to do what other communities do, which is pool their capital, we don't do that. Our leadership is fragmented, and they fight. We have a feudal system of leadership. You're in one kingdom or another. It's not coherent. It's not strategic. And we don't use the political power that we have. And I think that there are a lot of things discouraging that. And the educational piece is huge. If we would spend more time making sure our kids could read and could achieve and could excel, I think that uh, we would do more for our economic prospects than anything else. Yeah, hi. My name is Kevin Glenn. I'm a, a history teacher at Los Angeles High School for the last 20 years. I know that the number one problem, almost all teachers say, is essentially this issue of overcrowding. On average, our classes, let's say for a history class, our norm is 42 kids. The air conditioning works sporadically, usually only in the wintertime, and the heating only usually works in the, in the, in the summertime. And, uh, and I know that the district, the last uh, 10, 15 years, has made this huge effort for a PR program for building new schools and 
and I know more capacity, but when we talk about building new schools for students, I sometimes wonder that the schools we're building are for students now being born in Mexico City, being born in Seoul, being born in Beijing, being born in Africa, being born in India, Bangladesh, all over the world, and not so much for the, the children of Los Angeles. And I want to know from this panel, where do we focus our energies? Are we going to focus our energies for our own kids? Are we going to focus our energies on other people's children? Thank you. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These are our children. I do think it is important to be reminded that communities like ours are going to have other costs associated with the strained resources, and you see it in schools, you see it in hospitals, you see it. I think the tax picture overall turns out to be more mixed than people imagine, given a lot of studies about taxes that illegals surprisingly do pay. But there's no question that there are a lot of strained public resources, and, and I do think that's a, a noteworthy addition to the discussion. I'll add to that that in schools that are primarily black and Latino, there's a lot of anxiety amongst black parents that so much attention is paid to kids whose first language is not English, and they're feeling that as well. A, a teacher, I mean, I consider myself a teacher. A teacher doesn't choose his or her students. A teacher is supposed to impart his or her passion and her knowledge. We have more than enough resources. It's how we decide to utilize them. We have a, a over a $100 billion budget in the state of California, over a $100 billion budget. If you add the other school district budgets, we are the richest country in the world and the richest state of that country and the most prosperous section of that. And you're telling me we're running out of resources? It's a matter of choices that we've made. I am an L.A. Unified product, and I loved my teachers. And this is not against buildings or what have you. I don't remember the buildings. I don't remember the air conditioning. I remember my teachers. Good evening. My name is Angelica Salas. I'm the executive director of CHIRLA, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles. And I wanted the panel to speak to the issue of diversion away from the issues that really matter to Los Angeles and to uh, working men and women by using and focusing so much on the questions, do immigrants really take the jobs of native-born? Just to speak to the focusing on immigrant bashing as a way to divert our attention away from the real problems and the real solutions that we should all be facing. I think you probably put it as eloquently as, as any one of us could, and just in the interest of time, and I apologize, and I'm, in, I'm glad you made your, the comment. Um, I think we could all agree that there's a fair amount of diversion going on, but at the same time, this is a, a legitimate issue. We have millions of people here whose status is illegal, and we can disagree about what to do about that, but I think it's a legitimate issue for democracy to rely on an, a workforce that is underground. So I think there is diversion, but I also think it's a legitimate issue. But in terms of issues that are not being addressed, I think you put it legitimately. And rather than have the panel kick that around for a while, because we, we need to sort of wrap up soon, but I want to give the, the two other people in line a chance to, to say something. But thank you. Question. Our civil rights lawyer accurately described for us the tension that we all experience, and that is the shape of the economy, which is increasingly taking the appearance of a barbell. And the right hand of that barbell is the upper 1% of the income bracket, and the bottom end of that barbell is probably substantially all the incredibly poor people that live here, plus a stretched out middle class. The question I have, and this is for the economist, can you please address yourself to the political issue of resource allocation. We as a society have a demand for goods and services from our public sector. 
we have a need to maintain and enhance our infrastructure, which we have allowed to deteriorate over the course of our adult lives. To what extent is our political leadership responsible for the failure to drive home our need to invest in that infrastructure on a current basis as compared to deferring the payment for maintenance of our lifestyle onto the future generations? Well, first of all, remember California is a donor state. For every dollar that we send in tax revenues to Washington, D.C., we get 79 cents back. So we are a donor state. It's the old ABC syndrome. And so, first of all, here again, we go back to the people in Washington, D.C. that represent us, and they need to represent us more effectively. And here again, they're rather disorganized despite efforts to do that. When you get down to local governments, a lot of times, basically what you're doing is trying to say, okay, I want to do this, but if something goes wrong, I don't want to take any blame. And so I think what we have to do is, again, demand more from our elected officials. And uh, what is our voting percentage? It's abysmally low. So we all need to participate when there's election. Please get out and vote and be an informed voter. There are poor whites, too. They're in the same situation who are being affected by illegal immigration. And I think that's something we can't overlook and we can't forget because all white people aren't rich and educated. There are plenty of poor, struggling, uneducated people who define a path ahead just as any other group. Second thing is, I think that it's a real disservice to compare the civil rights struggle of the people who were captured, carried in ships across the ocean, in chains, held in slavery for 300 years, to a people who come here on their own accord, break our laws to do so, and then march in the streets. Now, we can agree or disagree on whether they have the right to march in the streets, but to say that's the same as the civil rights movement of the black people is just a disservice, and I think it's disgraceful because it's not the same thing. And finally, a question. I know two of our, our panel members here support the legalization of the 10 to 12 million illegal immigrants who are currently in the country. Does the panel have anyone who sits here who actually doesn't support that? And if not, shouldn't there be someone? Thank you. Does anybody here oppose the legalization of... No, you got us. Um, yeah, people in the audience do. And, I, and that brings a point. I wanna, we need to wrap this up, but I want to thank everybody for coming here. And I also find this very heartening that we've had a very civil exchange on immigration. There's, there are a lot of strong feelings on this. I've seen a lot of heads shaking as people have made comments, but everybody's been very respectful. And uh, that's a good model for others uh, as this debate proceeds. And thank you very much for coming. Thanks. You've been listening to Do Immigrants Really Take Our Jobs? A discussion recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation. Special thanks to the California Endowment for their support of Zocalo's community forums. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. Jade Gao is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.
This is 89.3 KPCC, now broadcasting two new digital HD radio channels, BBC Mundo, the Spanish-language news service from the BBC, and The Current, an adult alternative music format from Minnesota Public Radio. For more on HD radio, visit our